Hi everyone, this is Abraham here. Just wanted to begin by acknowledging that there is a lot going on in the country right now, so I hope that you are all staying safe, and also that this episode might sound a little maybe tone deaf or off color given the seriousness of the circumstances. We recorded this quite a while back, and this is just the planned release date for a while. And so I apologize if this sounds weird, just given the light sort of nature. We do take a professional tone here, but you know we're also telling jokes. So I want to acknowledge that we support the Black Lives Matter movement. And even hopefully we can do a discussion on that at some point down the road. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this uh, silly show that we did on masturbation. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane on your favorite consumable psychology podcast. (laughs) Yep. And let's start right away with a PSA that we are talking about sex stuff this entire episode. So if that's something you're uncomfortable with, there's probably no part of this discussion you'll really want to hear. Although I think it's really interesting. So if if you think you can tolerate it, we're not necessarily going into the methods of how to do this or any really explicit detail about it, but we will be talking about sex things the entire time. And so if that's something you're not comfortable with, probably just sit this one out. Yes. And also too, as a caveat on top of that is we are talking about a very specific area of sex. We're not talking about overall sexual health. We're not talking about sexual well-being. We're not even really talking about the nuances of social relationships and consent and all that stuff. We're going to talk about a very very specific topic within the sexual health realm. We're kind of talking about health. Yeah. So we're talking about masturbation. Yeah, of course. And all of the stuff that comes along with that, a lot of history to unpack there. I think we'll we'll try to answer the question, what is it? What are the implications of doing it? What is the historical orientation to it? Yeah, I'm really excited about this because this is shockingly one of the areas that's in my wheelhouse, professionally, not not personally. I mean, spoiler (laughs) alert, Spoiler alert to everybody. Most people do this, right? Yeah. But this is, I'm really excited about this because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about masturbation and sexual health in general. Hopefully this will dispel some of that for everybody out there. Yeah, actually. So before we start talking about that, will you describe a little bit, or or do you want to save your discussion of your work for the end? Or do you want to start with that? No, I can talk about it now. When I got into behavior analysis, one of the things I started doing was working in the sexual health realm. And so I started working with sex offenders specifically who had developmental delays or some kind of developmental disability. And so kind of expanded my repertoire within that. So I tend to specialize with sex offenders who have disabilities, but also am the vice president of the sex behavior research and practice special interest group through our international organizations. So I do a lot of work in this realm. A lot of education work and a lot of dissemination work, but mostly my practice focuses on sexual health, specifically to developmental disabilities and developmental delays. I feel like if it comes up while we're discussing this, that you have some relevant piece of information or story, you should definitely jump in with that. Oh, I've got plenty. Yeah, I think that'd be really interesting. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. Okay, gotta warm up the hands. (laughs) Just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was coming. There's going to be a joke somewhere. It's yeah, like there's going to be somewhere. <laughs> All right. So I guess we can begin, of course, by defining this concept when we're talking about masturbation. This is the sexual stimulation of one's own genitals. And I really looked at a, a number of different sources trying to get 
see where there was some divergence on that. That was pretty universal. That seems to be the agreed upon definition is the stimulation of one's own genitals. It doesn't necessarily need to lead to something like an orgasm, although it could. There's also a tendency to use that term to describe any activity that's self-stimulating in some way. So I often hear people talking about mental masturbation, which is not even them thinking necessarily about something sexually, but where they often maybe stroke their own ego and thinking about it, or they will talk about something in such a way that it's like they're doing it just for the pleasure of doing it and for no other reason they're talking about or thinking about something. So you can see the theme emerging in that the realm of that topic. Yeah, and I think a key point to this definition too is the idea it's sexual stimulation doesn't necessarily involve or have to involve the hands. And I think that's something like that's kind of an image that's conjured up generally about masturbation and it doesn't necessarily have to do that. So, you know, we're going to kind of make mention of things like toys and different things like that, but yeah, this is what we're getting at here. This is kind of like the core of this whole discussion is this idea of sexual stimulation of one's own genitals. Nice and simple. That's an excellent point. And as I mentioned at the top, we weren't planning to go into a lot of description about the various techniques, but in preparing for the research, I did find a lot on the ways that people do this. And the hands was actually only a, a portion of it. There are a lot of ways to stimulate <laughs> one's genitals that do not involve your hands as one probably already knows from experience, but you know, when you start looking at the nature of humanity and how innovative we are, one only needs to look in the sexual health realm and how innovative people have gotten just to get off. So, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting to see that when you start kind of digging into that, like the things people create and the ways that people figure it out, it's really impressive. It really speaks to human ingenuity. What's the rule that like, if it exists, it exists as a form of porn. Or something like that. I forget what the internet rule is, but yeah, there's something like if it exists in the world, it exists in somebody's imagination, there is porn for it. Yeah, something like that. And I think there is something useful to look at this from a sort of evolutionary perspective and that one of the reasons thinking about the why we do what we do, under what conditions do we do this? This is what is described or what we would describe as a primary reinforcer. And what that means is that you don't have to learn about this for it to be rewarding as an activity. You don't have to have someone like teach you or go to a class and be like, oh, guess what? When you have an orgasm, that feels good. Really, this is one of the things that has benefited species because sexual reproduction leads to offspring, which means genetic diversity and creating more replication of those genes. And so all the activities that facilitate that, and actually this would not facilitate reproduction, obviously, but the sensation is the same. And so seeking out that sensation, and not the same, but similar, seeking out that sensation is intrinsically rewarding. We don't, we don't have to learn about it. And so one of the reasons that any animal or person would do this is because it shares characteristic features with the primary outcome of feeling good, which is selected for by evolution because seeking out that feeling will often result in greater reproduction and therefore more spread of the gene. And on the topic of primary reinforcers, just to give some other examples, things like food, oxygen, sleep, there are things that human beings are naturally motivated for that we don't really have to learn. We don't have to learn that food tastes good or that it is a necessity. Like once we contact it, we are, we're good, right? Like sleep is the same thing. Oxygen being, you know, like cooling down when you're too hot. All that stuff is is something that is inherent in the species and the majority of the species will share that as part of like their genetic code. 
it's biologically relevant and therefore it comes it's part of the package those things will automatically work as things that people seek out and and animals too yep getting into the etymology of this i always think the etymology can be kind of fun but there were a couple different things that i found from greek there was mezia which apparently means penis and then there was a couple in latin so there's some dispute about where the word comes from but in latin manus means hand and to bear means to disturb so manus to bear would be to disturb with one's hand or there was also manu stuprer which means instead to defile with one's hand and you can sort of see the similarity in those terms how it changed to masturbation over time i didn't find any clear timeline on but those are some of the proposed historical contexts from which that word came this is not a new concept to human beings you know so maybe we started developing the language to describe it but even prehistoric cave art depicted masturbation or or what was assumed to be yeah they could have just been teenagers going into these prehistoric caves and drawing on the walls and making it try and look like cave art because they thought it was funny and we were talking about this before the episode started like human beings there are some general truths that human beings that you'll see throughout history and one of them is vandalism that talks about like your mom jokes and stuff like that like that just kind of is consistent across human experiences there was some vandalism i want to say in maybe pompeii wow they found some as they were cleaning up that's great that they found that somebody was making dick jokes on the walls <laughs> you know so it, these are universal truths essentially <laughs> you know it's kind of funny to see it does seem like the available evidence seems to suggest that there was no time when people weren't interested in this in some capacity yeah exactly <laughs> which is to say that they were doing it or talking about it and one way or another like as far back as we have evidence of people doing anything that seems to be one of the things they were doing yeah pretty consistent so i mean we even see like even records from ancient sumar will indicate positive attitude and belief that masturbation increases potency so you'll see that in some cultures where maybe fertility statues and stuff like kind of that center around all of that type of culture you'll see even back all the way back then you'll see that people talked about it being important for potency as part of the culture yeah, I actually left out quite quite a few pieces of the historical development of this, but it does seem like if you go back far enough, there was a period of time where most cultures, or many cultures at least, had a positive attitude toward the idea of masturbation. And then there was this period of time in sort of the 1700s, 1800s, where at least among European, it also looks like some of the religions of the Middle East, there was a reversal of that opinion. But the Egyptians were pretty fond of it. And actually, I found that the Egyptians noted in some of their texts that they felt the ebb and flow of the river, the Nile, which was very important to their culture, seemed to almost look like an orgasm to them. And so there was a period of time in history where they felt like the Nile was this life-giving source and therefore to complete the cycle of life-giving pharaohs were required to ejaculate into the nile so they would their tradition was they would stand on the bank and do their business into the water and that was considered a good omen and would complete the circle of facilitating good crops and fertility and childbearing that sort of thing so this it was a widely recognized important activity i guess if you will from what i understand about king tut maybe not so much fair enough <laughs> Yeah, he didn't really have a great quality of life from what I understand. So, I mean, maybe he didn't get to. I don't know. There's probably not a historical record that he actually did it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even get an exact timeline, but it seems like there's maybe a few generations of pharaohs where this was the, the case. But 
it was only a snippet of Egyptian history where, where that was considered appropriate, or I guess it was actually required to ensure high prosperity. Yeah. So then the 1700s roll around, right? So now we've got human history is advancing. We're progressing. The 1700s roll around. And then people started to believe that masturbation would cause mental health issues such as depression. So you started seeing this kind of shift into an idea that maybe it wasn't so good. Yeah, there was increasing industrialization or things that would lead to industrialization. There was a lot of more systematic implementation of religion at a larger scale going on at these times. And a lot of people had a lot of various ideas about this. And so there was this pamphlet that was published called The Heinous Sin of Self-Pollution. As far as I can tell, there wasn't an author ascribed to this, but this is something that was being passed around. You see this all over the place when looking at the history and the context of masturbation and sort of human history. And this text specifically advised young male readers that if they persisted in their indulgence of this evil act, then they would be unmanned by the time they got to their manhood. They'd either suffer from premature ejaculation or even all the way to being impotent completely. But no matter whatever happened, if they engaged in masturbation, they would be ridiculous to women and therefore would not be able to find a sexual partner. So what's actually interesting about that is there are still some groups that are not necessarily religious groups that subscribe to that tenet. And we've mentioned it before here. We don't need to mention any specific Nazi groups out there, but that is actually something that they subscribe to and actually cause a lot of other issues so don't they usually tend to have a religious slant in those groups still yeah yeah but i mean does it matter (laughs) no i guess it doesn't (laughs) i was just saying that like i don't know how secular the anti-masturbation act has ever been it seems like it's always had some kind of link to a religious tradition of some kind Well, specific to this idea of being unmanned, some of these groups that do subscribe to this don't necessarily have that religious bent to it. It's more so the idea of that when you do, it reduces your testosterone and you need the testosterone to be whatever they want you to be, I guess. But it actually has the opposite effect. Like the less you masturbate, the less testosterone you have, at least for male humans. Right. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. (laughs) Women are like, oh, I don't want to masturbate then. (laughs) I want to have all this testosterone. So going back to 1700s, now you start seeing all the stuff, this propaganda about how it's problematic and how it relates to your future livelihood and your well-being and stuff. And so they start kind of advising people at an early age, and now it's become this thing that you're supposed to be guilty about or afraid of. And this became pretty prevalent. So even in philosophy, you had the famed philosopher Immanuel Kant, who described masturbation as the a violation of moral law. He even said, quote, Immorality lay in the fact that a man gives up his personality when he uses himself merely as a means for the gratification of an animal drive, end quote. And this was in a book that he published called Metaphysics of Morals in 1797. And you can see in here describing that essentially there is this distinction for him between what is human and what is animal. Animal is bad. Human is good. And that things that are pleasurable are bad and things that are suffering are good seems to be the dichotomy that is implied by that, which is interesting because that tradition does carry over in a lot of other traditions later on, especially religious and whatnot, where there's this like food that tastes good is bad. Sexual gratification is bad. Doing enjoyable activities is bad. 
And it generalizes far outside of things that are sexual, but sexuality is definitely like the pinnacle of bad because it's one of the most enjoyable things. Yeah. I mean, to the degree that children were threatened, right? Like, I mean, you see this built into religious texts, you see this built into all kinds of stuff, but here specifically, there's a history of children being threatened that if they did masturbate, they could become insane or develop other mental disorders. And that has to be terrifying for a young child. And Right. Really complicated. It's got to be some complicated feelings to have towards that situation. Yeah. And I think it comes from the place that people have long understood that to really influence how people feel about something, they want to start with childhood. Because if you can, in their formative years, convince children of a particular idea, that'll be a lot harder to change once they get older. And so I think that's part of where the targeted ads of the youth of the 1700s was toward like, don't masturbate because you're going to want to, and it's going to drive you crazy if you do. Now, this also spread into medical practice. And I do want to iterate again that at this time, even the 17, 1800s, medical practice was largely often linked to a particular religious orientation. And so I do think that that continued to spread throughout this. And there was the, the name for this idea of masturbation was called onanism. And essentially, this was a term that was demonizing masturbation. And they argue that for men specifically, and this kind of goes to the, the orientation of the Nazis you were describing, the idea was that semen was critical for the vitality of the body and therefore losing it could cause all kinds of deleterious health effects like epilepsy, gonorrhea, impotence, gout, nervous disorders, blurred vision, headaches, rheumatism, and a whole host of other things that I decided not to list them all. I included these because they were sort of the top of the list, but also the wide range and outcomes that this is supposed to cause, which I'm, I'm looking at thinking, how? <laughs> Especially some of these, like, how? Like gonorrhea? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, like it's the opposite. Yeah, it's literally, I mean, and that's, and going back to the idea of this, and it's something that we recognize as part of the human experience is, is that historically people are driven by some agendas. And so you'll have people that have specific agendas that drive certain research, they drive certain, you know, cultural practices or whatever, or you have this issue of just ignorance, right? People just don't know. And so, I mean, I always go back to the idea of when you start talking about how far our science has come in general, there's stuff today that we're learning and there's stuff today that we're doing that will probably 100, 200, 300 years from now, they'll be like, what the hell were they doing? I mean, hopefully. Hopefully, and that's good. That's a good thing, right? That means that the science is progressing. And so I kind of always try to frame it back to that. It was like, maybe that's what was going on. Maybe they just didn't understand this enough. And that was just within the, the context in which they were working. But it's still interesting to see that like, hey, don't masturbate or you're going to have chronic seizures for the rest of your life. <laughs> you're just like, that's a big jump. Well, I do think that at this point, there were various ways of arriving at something that seemed to be a truth. And before there was a very well established method of experimentation for trying to identify what was a good way of describing something in a way that was pragmatic and made sense was essentially any kind of coherence that one could develop around an idea could be counted as truth. If you could make an argument and you could understand that argument, that was sufficient enough for that argument to be considered true by a lot of people. Right. And so if you could say something like, our bodies produce semen, 
talking about males at this point. Male bodies produce semen. Therefore, semen seems to be good for your body, which all this we have a stretch right there. But you could see, like, if our bodies do it, it must be a good thing. And therefore, it's important for our vitality. We need to keep it inside of us, like our blood, right? So you can see, you start tying together these, like, logical arguments, if you will. And I'm not saying they're logical as in I agree with them. I'm just saying that you can make that link and someone could understand how you made that link. And that was it. You don't need any other evidence beyond that. That was like, right. Well, you just talked me into it, buddy. Well, and it's interesting because then you start getting people that, you know, they start having that discussion and then they start kind of capitalizing on that. Right. So we didn't have this as a bullet point in there, but I wanted to include this because it's right around the same time of the next bullet point. Are you familiar with the origin story of Kellogg's cornflakes? Oh, Kind of. I've actually heard it before, and I don't remember the exact details, but I have actually heard the origin of this. But feel free to share. That'd be great. So essentially, the origin is that cornflakes, the cornflakes that you can go buy in the store from Kellogg's, the company Kellogg's that makes a ton of cereal, it was originally created as a treatment to stop people from masturbating. I don't know what to say. It was just one of those things. It was originally created as an anti-masturbatory supplement, like a food item that people could consume that would stop them from masturbating. So, And this was in the 1800s. This was in the mid-1800s, late-1800s, when people were still kind of finding this to be a concern. Probably the original formula was fairly effective at that. (laughs) And now it has the opposite effect. That's it. Just kidding. (laughs) I don't have any cereal-based fetishes. Sorry, that was the only cereal-based fact I had for this episode. Okay. Well, I have one, kind of, which is that (laughs) in the 1830s, a man named Sylvester Graham, who was a Presbyterian minister, and his last name might sound a little familiar, and that's because he was the inventor of graham crackers, and he was one of these extremists who believed that any form of pleasure was a sin, that it was unhealthy, and that it was pathological. And as I understand it, the original graham crackers were these bland, tasteless, hard-to-eat lumps of like oats and and whatnot and we're, again we're intended to be like this is just nourishment you're not supposed to enjoy your food you're not supposed to enjoy your life joy is bad be miserable and he was actually so extreme so he believed in moderating everything but he even believed in moderating moderating which is like don't get let yourself get too carried away with what you consider moderation like really scale back that desire to do this thing that you you think is good or feels good or whatever So he was very intense about this and very much a zealot for this like sort of abstinence from all pleasurable things. First of all, a couple things. One, the irony of how delicious graham crackers are now (laughs) and how much joy they bring me when I eat them, especially when I find a good s'more. Yeah, he is rolling in his grave every time you eat a graham cracker. He's going, no! So... (laughs) With that being said, there has to be some movement or change, right? You know, there's kind of an ebb and flow in human history and attitudes towards masturbation begin to change around the beginning of the 20th century. We start seeing people shift. We start seeing people understand it a little bit more. We start seeing people kind of maybe starting to take the reins of their life and enjoying their life a little bit. I mean, I think about the 1920s and like all the stuff that was going on with the flappers and like everybody dancing and like all the good music that came out of the 1920s and people are starting to kind of like get out a little bit more and With that, these other attitudes start coming out, right? The attitudes towards sex and the attitudes towards promiscuity and pornography and all these other things that start developing within this kind of these few decades around then. Interestingly, there was also a substantial increase in the availability of education 
and people's IQs were increasing at a steady rate at this point. You had a greater development of the scientific method and experimentation. You had the rise of several scientific disciplines that have since become firmly established as the way of doing science. And a lot of those foundational things were developed. This is a lot of the time uh, Einstein was doing his work and, you know, this period of time. And so, yes, a lot has changed. And one of the most notable figures in all of psychology, Sigmund Freud, was for all of his faults, he actually did make some interesting and useful observations. And one of them was that it was normal for people and even children to explore masturbating and their sexuality. Obviously, Freud is it's almost a joke at this point how much his theory was centered around things like sexuality. But it did come at an opportune moment where it had been so vilified prior to this, this time in history, that it was useful to have a prominent figure like that speaking out in a way that was less taboo, kind of. I mean, it kind (laughs) of became taboo in a different way for him, but he did essentially try and normalize this a little bit more. And I think that there, there is some valiant effort in that. I always like talking about Freud in the way that, you know, he's got his reputation, there are some stuff that's come out of that that has been useful for educating and kind of framing some behavioral interventions later, too. I mean, psychodynamics has its own thing, but parts of psychodynamics that work are behavioral in nature. And I love the idea that he kind of normalized the idea about people are going to naturally explore sexuality and those sensations. And I think that that was an important psychological breakthrough for people to start looking at that and understanding that as part of like a childhood development and kind of a human development type of thing. Yeah. And, and not that we're here to exonerate Freud in any way. There's plenty to criticize about his theories. But another thing I always liked about what Freud contributed, and this is kind of not necessarily related to masturbation, but he also helped normalize the idea that we develop a lot of our behaviors, skills, and personality traits when we're young and that we're affected by our environment because there was definitely an orientation preceding this that we come biologically prepackaged with all the things that we are going to be. And of course, that's contrasted with the tabula rasa sort of orientation. But Freud was one of, again, because of his fame and his notoriety, he did actually help lead toward theories that were more. I don't want to say susceptible to, but embraced more this idea that the things that we do are affected by our experiences when we're young, which not they didn't necessarily shake out the same way that he proposed or thought that they might, but he was at least correct that those experiences do have an effect on us. Yeah. So another thing that we want to talk about within this is this person named Alfred Kinsey, right? So he used a Gallup poll, and which is controversial argued as biased. We kind of always have that, but it indicated that many, if not most people did actually masturbate across comprehensive ranges of age, income, success, and education. So basically he conducted this survey, this poll, and he said, Hey, most people, if not all people do this thing. And that was probably kind of eye-opening for people to know that, Hey, this is something that is pretty common. I'm not the only one that does it. Are you familiar with the, the Kinsey scale? I am not. So Kinsey, actually, this is not something that is well-loved by the LGBT community any longer, but at the time that he developed it, this was a pretty novel idea for the most part, at least in, in mainstream psychology. This was the scale that there was not necessarily heterosexual and homosexual, but there was a sort of a range between where you would have like sort of a sliding scale from heterosexual to homosexual, and that most people fell sort of in the middle of that, not necessarily at one super extreme or the other. 
or that you at least could have that range of variability. Not that people necessarily fell in the middle all the time, but that you didn't necessarily have people who were always clumped right at, up against heterosexual or right up against homosexual, and that you could have these sort of varying. Now, a lot of people have criticized this, and this is not necessarily the place to get into that, but I've criticized the point that that seems to, again, pin it to that binary orientation as opposed to viewing it as being more dynamic than that. But at least at the time, it was a pretty revolutionary idea that did help get people away from this idea of it being just one or the other. But that's that was just sort of wanted to speak to his credentials and fame there. Yeah. There was this other guy, and this is actually more in the 1800s-ish areas, but this is transitioning to the 1900s, named H. Havelock Ellis, which is a wonderful name. Yeah. He was one of the first people in this era, actually, to point out that there were many famous and successful people who admitted to masturbating as something that they either had done or did. And this was sort of just at the turning point at which people were starting to think somewhat differently about sexuality. And so he was sort of cavalier in his his publication of this, which I think was great. Yeah, I would love to read that around that time because I feel like somebody would go, you mean John Wilkes Booth masturbates? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Because <laughs> he was a famous actor. Like, he was a famous actor from a famous acting family in the United States during the Civil War. It's fair. I want to meet that person that was like, I won't do that. He did that and he killed the president. Yeah. He may have tried to limit his list to people who were mostly famous for good things. I'm not sure. Yeah. Probably likable. Yeah. It turns out that, and we have listed a few, there are many myths about <laughs> masturbation and many that even persist to this day. And some of them are more relevant now than they would have been back then. So should we dive into some of these? Yes, let's do it. So the first one I want to tackle is that if you find that somebody is masturbating or maybe there's the thought that masturbation means that the relationship that you're in is not satisfying and that couldn't be further from the truth. It actually can be a supplemental activity, just something that feels good. It's easy to do on one's terms. It can be any number of things. It has nothing to do with a bad relationship, really. I did find a study that essentially said they looked at like 15,000 participants, pretty evenly split between male and female. And they found something that like for the males tend to approach it like it was kind of like a quota. It was like how many times they felt like they needed to ejaculate. And so they would. Yeah, there was how much intercourse they were having with their partner or partners and then how much they wanted to be having. And they just sort of filled in the gap between that number with masturbation. And for females, it was more just complimentary. It was like, I'm having all the sex I want to have and I want to supplement that with this activity if I'm remembering the study correctly. Right. But yeah, I found a really cool description of this where they basically said, most of the time, you're not going to find two people who exactly agree on how much sex they want to be having. And so basically masturbation allows them to be even. So they sort of reach the point at which they're both satisfied. Yeah, that makes sense. Another one here is that this idea that you'll start to prefer masturbation over sex with a partner. And this one is actually very complicated. The short answer is no, that's not going to happen. Not if you're having a satisfying relationship. Where it becomes complicated is there are people who do not have fulfilling relationships, who maybe have aversive experiences with sex, that they're probably more likely to retreat to the isolation. But it's not the masturbation that's causing them to feel that they would prefer not having an intimate relation with somebody else and not failure on their part. But it's not having been successful in contact in a fulfilling relationship sexually, emotionally, or otherwise and that therefore the only alternative really is masturbation. And so it's important to sort of tease out that caveat there. So most of the time for almost everybody, this is like 99% or higher, 
people will prefer the connection and experience of intercourse with a partner, with someone that they have a relationship with, as opposed to masturbation. And masturbation can, again, sort of be that supplement. Yeah. And I think that's important is understanding like kind of the origin of that challenge, right? That's really what you're getting at. It's like the origin is not necessarily masturbation is the thing. It's that there's something else that's contributing. Yeah. And that's actually kind of a common theme to some of the other caveats to this that we'll discuss. So another point, another myth that we want to dispel is that children who do it are sexualized at a young age. And, you know, what you found is, and this is a complicated again, but children do it as naturally. They kind of do it all the time. They, it's not going to have the same type or same outcomes as maybe adult masturbation when people become more proficient, but there is that kind of exploratory nature of it. And so it's part of learning, growing up, learning about themselves, learning about the world around them, kind of how they interact with it, learning the rules and stuff like that. But it's actually within that it's associated with less promiscuity and risky behavior. So children who do it younger tend to have less risky behavior later. And particularly when it's treated with a level of sort of understanding and a healthy discussion. And so it's like, you're not, there's no utility in like talking to a two-year-old about this. Like they probably wouldn't understand you if you did. But once they get to an age where that's likely to start happening or they're, they're exploring it on their own, that's when it's a, a time to maybe have that conversation so that they don't feel confusion or shame or guilt or fear about this. And that that actually leads to a healthier relationship with themselves to the concept more generally of sex and sexual behavior, where it's, it's treated with respect and not with fear, shame, guilt maybe a taboo nature or it's like it's something that we innately desire biologically but we are afraid of it so we do it in an unhealthy way because we want to seek it out but we're not sure how to do that it's very complex but and so we're not arguing that you try and sexualize children just that when they do it naturally on their own is does not mean that they're going to have unhealthy sexual behavior growing up by itself right another myth here is that it becomes addictive not for most people and the conditions under which it is likely to become addictive. There's actually almost always going to be some other underlying condition that is like where the problem is. And it's not the masturbation that's addictive. It's the fact that they maybe have some other mental health disorder or they have some other really problematic things going on in their life where that becomes essentially the only retreat, the only relief or the only escape or maybe the only reinforcer, the only like pleasurable outlet that they have. So again, it's almost never the act itself. There's usually some other complex situation that is making it so it looks like addiction. Another one too that I, I love this one because we've talked about Coro on this before. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this one says it'll cause your genital to, or genitals, I should say, to become numb or to shrink. And it's just not the case. There's no evidence to say that that's a thing that even happens. There is also the idea that masturbation causes infertility. This is not only not true, but it might be the opposite. I found a source that actually said for females, it increases the likelihood of pregnancy and that it can prevent cervical disease and help flush out any debris that may have gotten up around the cervix. And there's a whole reason for this that has to do with the fluids that are in there. But even for men, there was a similar outcome where the idea is that this flushes out low motility sperm and any debris that might, may have gotten in their urethra for whatever reason. And so there is an increased likelihood of successful pregnancy for those who have frequent ejaculation or orgasm, especially if it's pretty close in time. I like that. That's good. So if you're, if you're trying, maybe that's a thing to try more <laughs> is masturbate more. Nice. Another one that this is one of my favorite ones. It causes your palms to be hairy. No. No, 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 no. That's more 
lycanthropy and not <laughs> masturbation. Yes. Becoming a werewolf causes your palms to be hairy, not <laughs> masturbating. Right. It causes acne. Nope. Nope. No evidence there. And it causes cancer. Absolutely not. That's not even how the biology of cancer works. Like, not, not in the realm of possibilities. That's, that, that's so beyond. But these are myths that get perpetuated about it. So just know none of those things we said are really true. All right. So we've painted the historical context. We have talked about some of the myths. Let's get into sort of where psychology has more or less landed on this concept. The vast majority of places, what you're going to see is that normal masturbation behavior is considered both safe and healthy with other benefits for most people. It is considered natural and it almost never results in problems. As a matter of fact, it can be helped to mitigate a lot of other problems that might arise out of other unhealthy sexual behavior. Yeah. And there are a lot of things like specific biological benefits that you'll see. So when people do masturbate, it causes a rush of epinephrine resulting in the feeling of euphoria. So, I mean, that's a lot of why people do it because it feels good. Some believe it's a useful component in the comprehensive treatment of depression. So there are some, maybe some studies out there and some links out there that it might be a useful part of that. But again, that's part of a treatment package. One source actually argued it helps to relieve stress and anxiety, can increase self-worth, so those are some other benefits that you'll see there. It's very unlikely that you're going to get an STD unless you're using infected items or infected surfaces. But really, if you're masturbating, you're probably not going to get an STD from it. That actually gets to the point that we sort of mentioned at the top of the use of things other than your hands. And again, there's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with this. You just as maybe some kind of service announcement that we can provide. Make sure it's clean because when you are rubbing anything on any part of your body that gives you access to the internal parts of your body. Like we have the skin that functions a really nice barrier between us and the outside world where all these things want to try and get in and kill us. Yeah. And so when we put things in the openings of that skin, that's where we face danger. That's the whole thing about the COVID-19. There's a lot initially about don't touch your eyes, your mouth, your nose, that sort of thing, because those are the holes in our, in our skin where things can get into us. And well, one of those other holes is in our genitals. And so when you rub those on foreign objects, if those objects aren't clean, then you can see infection. I mean, you would also see that if you stuck in your eyeball or your nose or your mouth or your ear. But that's just something to be aware of is making sure that those things are clean. But otherwise, you really can't get an STD from masturbating. Yeah. And to that point, when you decide like if maybe part of your masturbatory repertoire is using a toy, it's really important to wash it and to clean it. And to wash your hands and clean your hands. I mean, that stuff you can get not just not even STDs, but you can get infections. It can cause all kinds of problems. This is a fun PSA that kind of a side note here. If you're going to use a toy, get a toy that is cleanable. Make sure you're using the appropriate cleaning materials for whatever that material is and make sure that you're cleaning it regularly. Most of the time after every use, because it can cause a lot of problems if you don't. And you might be thinking like, Yes, our bodies are full of bacteria that we have a symbiotic relationship with, and those are actually good for us. And so it's like, if those are on that toy, then like, how could that be bad? Well, the problem is that toy will eventually be like on the shelf or in a drawer or something. And there are lots of bacteria in there that are not good for you. Right. And that's why you need to clean it regularly is to avoid attracting bacteria. And then, as you had mentioned, using safe cleaning materials so that you're not putting dangerous chemicals into your body. Right. And again, this would be true of like your food or putting things in your eyes or your nose. It's it's really just being sanitary and safe about when you insert things through the holes in your skin. Yep. 
So some other benefits they talk about too is it, that it lowers blood pressure. It can facilitate falling asleep. It can actually help partners learn about one another and learn about themselves too, what they like and what they don't like. And that can actually lead to some conversations about how to improve sexual health across partners. So you can have those conversations about like what I like, what I don't like, and make that work so that that sexual relationship is healthy. I've actually heard that one of the things that can occur in same-sex couples is they're a lot more open about sharing what they like and don't like and things like this. This is also true of communities where there's more open sort of sexual activity for I don't know if this is a derogatory term, I hope not, but like swingers or people who go to things like group sex type situations or anonymous. Polyamorous. Sex. Yeah, polyamorous. There you go. Thank you. Essentially, these are actually places where people are pretty good about open communication. And that doesn't necessarily happen a lot of times in other intimate relationships. And that there is a higher, a much higher rate of sexual satisfaction. I've seen some studies to suggest that there's a much higher rate of sexual satisfaction in same-sex couples because they're much more open about communication about these things and saying what they like and don't like and finding out what the other person likes and doesn't like, as opposed to just not communicating that, assuming that the other person either should or will just figure it out or being afraid to tell them. Right. And so you end up having less successful sexual intercourse in those circumstances because you don't know what's happening. So if you, if people do these activities where they masturbate, they can see each other masturbate, they can learn more about the other person and what they do enjoy and what they like about those like sexual contact. Perfect. There's another one here I think is really useful. So all the things that we were just talking about were essentially oriented to what are sort of the outcomes for anybody who's engaging in masturbation of some kind. But there's also some very specific ones that seem to be related to people identify as female versus people who identify as male. And for people who identify as female, there's some evidence to suggest that engaging in regular masturbation actually can increase their confidence and therefore their ability to find enjoyment in sexual encounters with their partner. And for men, they actually, there's some thought that it might help reduce prostate cancer. There's not enough evidence. It's not well supported, but that's kind of a line of inquiry that's being looked at right now. And there's an inverse relationship between frequent ejaculation and death from coronary heart disease. So that's kind of an interesting thing, too. Yeah, essentially what I saw here, I was really curious about this prostate cancer thing. And so essentially I went to try and vet that and I found a source saying, yes, some studies have essentially linked these things, but there's really not enough evidence to say that the effects there seem to be really subtle and small if they exist at all. And maybe just noise in the data. And then the coronary heart disease relation actually seems to be related to the fact that this is technically cardiovascular workout, even though it's small, it's better than nothing. And so the more you do it, the more it's like exercise and can therefore <laughs> actually improve your heart health. Again, it's just a correlation. There's not necessarily a cause effect relationship there, just that they're like, it would make sense to think about it this way. If that was what was going on. I want to see that doctor's appointment <laughs> with somebody who has like a clean bill of heart health. And they're like, what do you do? What do you do for like exercise? Nothing. It's like, and he just goes through this line of questioning. It's like, oh, I masturbate like 10 times a day. Oh, man. Like, you could be an Olympic runner. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I think we just learned something about Oly Olympic athletes. Yeah, yeah. We need to call Usain Bolt right now. Just get him on as a guest. Like, so <laughs> how often do you masturbate? We Yeah, we blindside. Gotcha journalism. <laughs> yep.
So there's some psych research out there too, and, and we're gonna kind of get into this, but do people feel a sense of guilt afterwards? And that is a question that comes up a lot, especially given the history it was gave with people shaming people and kind of this poor culture around the discussion. And they found that out of about 2000 people, a little bit more than 2000 people, around 8% of the group identified that, yes, they do feel guilty after they do it. But all those people had some kind of comorbid or underlying psychological issue, and that maybe contributes, you know, it could be that the guilt is a symptom of other variables, maybe not necessarily related to mental health. It could be just learning history or upbringing or any of that stuff. And what you find is it wasn't significantly related to the act of masturbation itself. It was some other variable, some other thing going on. Yeah. It's a lot more like you had someone who maybe already had depression. And then if they masturbated, then they already, they already were having all these negative thoughts about themselves, about their self-worth, about the quality of themselves, they masturbate and then they feel guilty about that afterward. Well, it really wasn't that masturbation caused them to feel guilty. It was that these are people who are suffering with depression and that that was likely going to be an outcome of anything that they did, especially something that felt maybe temporarily gratifying and then immediately returned to that thought of like, this is, you know, I'm bad. I shouldn't be doing thing, you know, whatever the thought might be. I'm not going to try and speak yeah. to that experience, but just that in all of these cases, it seemed like there were other psychological issues and mental, mental health issues that were going on and that the masturbation was not causing that sense of guilt. Right. All right, Shane, I think you are in a particularly good position to speak about one really important point here is something that I think does not get talked about enough is that there are a lot of people that are would be described as belonging to like a special needs population, right? These are people with various mental health diagnoses, some of them really severe that are impacted, and yet they are still people. And therefore, they still experience the motivation and the reward that comes with sexual gratification. So if you could speak to that. Yes. So I'm going to try to refrain from jumping on a huge soapbox about this because this is an area that I try to advocate for quite a bit, but I'm going to lay this out for everybody. First of all, People with special needs, even if they have really severe delays, are still sexual beings. They, if you have autism, if you have a developmental disability, even cerebral palsy, that natural genetic motivation for sexual stimulation is there. It doesn't go away just because you have a lower IQ on a test or anything like that. And so it's really important to recognize, especially if you work with a population that is special needs and it does require a higher level of care, that this may be a thing that you come across. I have spent a lot of time training caregivers first, that it's okay. And second, how to support those learners and the people that we work with to contact those things, not necessarily how to exactly masturbate. I've got plenty of stories about how that's a that's a really tough thing to work on but more so the importance of just understanding that it's part of human nature it's part of something that is genetically in our it's in, it's in our dna we're born with it we're born to try to seek that sexual stimulation it feels good we don't need to learn it no matter if you are a rocket scientist or somebody who does struggle with kind of daily living chores as well so I think it's just really important to recognize that and understand that when you are working with special needs, because I work with plenty of people that are like, oh, he doesn't understand what he's doing. I mean, or you have people that just can't do it well and it causes other issues. I worked with a guy who would, whenever he would get an erection, he couldn't use his hands very well. So he would grind on whatever he could grind on. And when he couldn't achieve orgasm, he would get really physically aggressive. And he would attack mom. He would attack dad. He would attack anybody that was close. But when he would achieve, there, his aggression was far less. 
and he had limited communication and there's all kinds of stuff that went along with it. There are other variables that contributed to the aggression. It wasn't just because he couldn't get off that he was having aggression, but it was important to note that context because he had to learn an appropriate way to do it. And that kind of story happens a lot where either you have somebody that can't do it safely, they can't do it well, or they have some caregiver that tells them they can't do it at all. And that leads to a whole host of other problems. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly love to hear your opinion on this because I understand that there is the, I guess there's an ethical argument, if you will, about like not to have a sexual relationship with a person with special needs for whom you're providing services. And that's absolutely accurate. And what we're not, we're not advocating to have a sexual relationship with that person. Right. And really what the, what we're advocating for, if anything, is to help them have a healthy, safe sexual repertoire and their behavior so that because it's like they're going to do these things anyway. So if you want to speak to that for a minute. Yeah. I think that where it gets complicated is people think of this as very icky. Just in general, people don't like talking about sex. They don't like talking about masturbation. They don't like people barely even use like anatomically correct language, you know, and that becomes a problem with victimization too. like, oh, you know, he touched my cookie. Well, okay, well, don't let him touch your cookies at lunch and then you're good. And that becomes a different problem where people are inaccurately reporting too, right? So there are a whole host of issues with that. Speaking to the idea of sexual health, sexual health comes down to an issue of safety and well-being more than anything else. Health and safety is really the core of any of our ethics goals and just any sort of helping profession. And so what I find a lot is that people get that misconstrued with, you know, something along the lines of, it goes back to those myths. If they learn to do this, they'll never stop. It'll go back to those issues of, well, they can't be safe in a relationship, so I'm not going to teach them. I'm not going to open that can of worms. I'm not about to open that Pandora's box. They don't have the capacity to understand a dangerous relationship or anything like that. And so teaching it is about education. It's about health and safety, and it's no different than providing education for kids in school who are learning about reproductive health, who are learning about sexual health related to hygiene. It's just such a wide spectrum that what we find a lot is that individuals with special needs are neglected in that population, in that education about condom use, about healthy relationships, about what sex is. I mean, I've worked with 20, 30 year olds that don't even know how people get pregnant. And it's because they are neglected in that sexual education realm. And then they end up having sex for the first time and having children because they don't know about safe sex. They don't know about STDs. They don't know about any of that stuff. It's the bigger problem is that for the healthcare profession, when you have somebody who is competent enough to make decisions, but they don't have the education to make the safe decision, it becomes more of a burden on the healthcare system and for that person too. It's a great point. Right now you've got children who are born to two parents who are not capable of taking care of them, who end up in foster care. I mean, this could be a series in itself, if I'm being honest, but we have an obligation to provide ethical and effective services to people. And we have an obligation to disseminate good science. And part of that good science is making sure that people stay healthy and they stay safe. And sexual health and sexual well-being is very clearly in that realm. I think that there's probably a well-founded concern that there is the potential for exploitation and abuse with respect to how one might deal with this with children or people with special needs populations. And so I think my thought is that the recommendation is that you have, first of all, clearly defined rules about what is considered acceptable and clear expectations about how to safely engage with that person with that. Because, yeah, like we don't want people who are trained therapists to be masturbating their clients. 
Right. And that should never happen. That should 100% never happen. That is not even close to the realm of what we're talking about here. Exactly. Well, and that's why I'm saying is like having really clear rules and, and a really clear documentation every single time and just say like, this is an area of sensitivity where there's the potential for exploitation and abuse. Therefore, we're going to lay out what the guidelines are and say that like you can help people with this particular issue within these parameters and here's how to do it. And every time you do this, make sure you document exactly what happens so that if you aren't sure what to do or if something goes wrong, it's not like it's being hidden or trying to be covered up or looks like there's some type of abuse. There is some ability to take a corrective action toward that because we want to be able to help these people in a way that prevents the opportunity for any kind of exploitation or abuse, but it also allows them to be safe and healthy. To that point, when we talk about kind of working within your scope and working within what you can and can't do, it is so critical for you if you're working in a sexual health realm to consult or talk to or work with somebody who is ASECT certified, A-A-S-E-C-T certified. They can be a teacher, they can be a therapist, they can be a counselor, but they are somebody who is trained in sexual education and health and well-being, counseling and all that stuff. They've gone through extensive training to do this. Start there. Do not take this on yourself to teach somebody else how to masturbate. Don't even start dipping your toes in that realm unless you have the resources and you have the support and you have the supervision and you have all the things that you need to make sure that you stay safe and that person you're working with stays safe because it is a very vulnerable area to start dipping into. That's a, that's a great point and I think a very helpful recommendation. And so, yeah, just make sure we're clear. We're saying that people who have these special needs, who require special services, who often have therapists of various kinds that are helping them, like they are people who are going to engage in sexual behavior. And so make sure you have the resources available to have a certified professional or get the training yourself to become a certified professional to help them do that in a way that's safe and workable for them. Exactly. Cool. That was actually an awesome soapbox. And I'm kind of I'm glad that we were able to dive into it just because I think that's something that is there are a lot of people who maybe even have the orientation to understanding this is important and I don't know what to do. And that's perfectly valid to be in that position. And so that's why we want to at least put you on the right direction, which is get help from someone who is certified and understand that this is not something to demonize or punish or in any way create, treat as it being a problem. It's just something that needs to be handled delicately at least, you know, I guess systematically by people who know what they're doing. Exactly. And have those safeguards in place so that there is there's no potential for harm. Exactly. One hundred percent. Okay. There is some potential for harm in this idea of masturbation. And so we'll just run through this list really quick just to make sure that we're we're clear in saying that like we're not just saying like masturbation is the greatest thing. Everyone should stop what they're doing and just drop their their pants and masturbate right now. <laughs> right. Like we want to make sure that we've we've covered this as comprehensive as possibly. So let's start. Shane, what are some potential for harm in masturbating? So one of the big ones that we see is a failure to do so appropriately. So people don't do it well, they don't do it right, they don't do it sufficiently, and it can result to harm, right? They can injure themselves because they use the wrong size toy. They do it because they do too, they do it too much and they cause actual physical injuries. So if it's not done appropriately, it's not done well, then it can actually result in harm to the self. Failure to learn how to do so appropriately can result in some of these paraphilias, which aren't necessarily problematic, although some of them can be, especially when they rely on things that are harmful or exploitative. And we'll get into paraphilias in a later episode, but essentially these are, I guess you could call them like sexual appetites that are very unique and often you can sort of think of fetishes as a way of doing it, but they often depend on a certain type of either visual or 
kinesthetic or other physical experience that can be very outside of what you would normally see. And again, that may not be problematic for some people, but it, it can be. I mentioned already that it can result in physical harm to the genitals. So I talked about sores and maybe some injuries like that, but it can also result in loss of participation in other important activities. So if somebody's doing it so often, it's something called behavioral excess, right? Where somebody engages in this thing so much that it does compete or get in the way of those normal activities that we have to do. Like maybe I'm not doing my hygiene routine because I'm spending all my time masturbating. And that is something that does happen for people as they get into these habits, they get into these routines and they do this so often that it does get in the way. Missing, you know, social activities, work, that sort of thing. Yeah. If that was ever to be that big of a problem. And then failure to learn to do it in appropriate ways that can result in doing it illegally, such as doing it in front of people, doing it unsolicited, the people who don't want it, doing it in two types of stimulation, such as illegal types of pornography or things that cause harm. That can be another place. You'll see, too, it gets convoluted a little bit when they start talking about it with other mental health issues. And sometimes that gets masked because maybe they're identifying masturbation is the problem. And it might be there might be some underlying symptom or some underlying concern that needs to be treated more effectively. You know, we talked about kind of isolating. We talked about unhealthy sexual relationships or or avoiding certain healthy sexual relationships. And so it kind of gets tied in with this is kind of the thing that people focus on. And it's really not the focus of intervention a lot of times. And then we'd mentioned this earlier, but using any dangerous chemicals or items or using con contaminated items to aid in masturbation can also result in harm. Yeah. And you can also develop an implicit association with arousal and the features of the frequent masturbation location. So if you are masturbating in a certain space all the time, some of the features of that environment are going to kind of get looped in and paired up with what you're doing. An example, like let's say someone, they only ever use their computer to masturbate to pornography and they otherwise aren't really on their computer. Then it's like just being around your computer can actually result in some amount of arousal. Just something to keep in mind. And then, as I mentioned earlier, for most people, they're unlikely to become addicted to this. And I actually don't know if anybody ever becomes addicted to masturbation, although because there's enough people in the world, it's very possible that that has happened. But what, uh, what there can happen is there are sexual addiction, generally speaking, and that masturbation can be part of that addiction. And so there's just something to address in terms of if there is harm for people who are likely to be addicted to things or they have other sexual addictions that that could just feed into that. So, yeah. And I think a final note that we kind of want to touch on here more than anything is that we've been spending the last hour talking about masturbation, but it's important to note that not everybody is excited or interested in masturbation. And that's perfectly okay. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean there's anything wrong. Doesn't mean that you're abnormal. Doesn't mean anything like that. It is certainly a preference. And we're not talking about every single person on the planet requires or is seeking masturbation. And so we know that that can't be true for an entire population. And that's okay. So if you are kind of walking away from this feeling like you're abnormal or feeling out of place, please try not to because the, the truth is, is not everybody likes masturbation. Not everybody likes any of that. And if you are not feeling those urges, it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Some people, they just don't get as much satisfaction out of like sexual activities. And that's, that's fine. That's just where you're at. Perfectly okay. Yeah. Any other take home points to wrap up with, do you think? I feel like we've hit this pretty <laughs> sufficiently. Yeah, I think we were pretty thorough about this one. I think the only take home point I would say is like educate yourself, get resources from scientifically based organizations or from reputable sources about any sort of sexual health stuff, because it is a vast, vast body of research that really tells you a lot about and gives you a lot of understanding about what it means to kind of have a healthy and safe sexual life. And I would just say, just get into that realm 
educate yourself because education is far more effective than abstinence or any of the other things that people tend to kind of tote as interventions for sexual behavior. Oh, yeah. I forgot. We didn't even really mention the abstinence thing as it pertains to like dealing with or treating masturbation. Yeah. That's a great point. The thing is, it doesn't work. Just uh, just so you know, there's my take on point about that. Abstinence <laughs> doesn't work. That's great. Yes. At least abstinence education because very almost nobody actually practices it really. Exactly. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, we really pounded that one out. Great job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, what's funny is I came into this without any puns. I wasn't prepared to like drop any jokes like that. And and then here we are. Like every now and again, you drop these ones. I'm like, I can't. I can't keep up with this. I'm actually going to have to research before we publish this and see if this qualifies as being explicit content because... I don't know. And you have to tag it as being so otherwise it it'll like get flagged. And oh, so that's fun. Yeah. I'll have to make sure. I don't know if puns count as explicit content or just talking about sex generally, but I'll look. It depends on where you're at, I'm sure. Okay. If you're in, in Alabama, I'm sure this is explicit. <laughs> they don't have sex in Alabama. <laughs> just kidding, Alabama, sorry. <laughs> no, we know you do. We know you do. It's fine. All right. Let's do some recommendations. I'm going to keep mine short and sweet. If you are interested in resources about masturbation, I am the vice president of a special interest group that works with the Association for Behavior and Analysis International, and it's called the Sexual Behavior Research and Practice Special Interest Group. And so what we try to do is we try to discuss sex from a scientific standpoint, from a behavior analytic standpoint. We try to talk about what resources are out there. We try to gather resources and really try to spend a lot of time educating people on sexual health, not necessarily specific to special needs that's just kind of my wheelhouse but we do talk about sexual health as like an overall topic of interest within the research how can people find this if they wanted to learn more about that group so we are on facebook under the sexual behavior research and practice sig you can search for that phraseology i guess in facebook but there is a website and i would start there the website is sbrpsig.org so sexual behavior research and practice sig.org sb rpsig.org. Awesome. Okay, so this week I would like to recommend the YouTube channel Tip the Milkman. And the reason I'm recommending this is because our producer Justin Greenhouse is releasing some songs from a band that he is in or was in, and they've re-recorded some of those songs and are recording themselves on video separately. And they're just really fun, sort of pop punk, a la Blink-182 and the like sort of songs they're a lot of fun and i think they're really good so i'd recommend people go check them out good all right thank you for recording with me shane thank you everyone for listening if you would like to tell us about masturbating or any other thing that we've talked about if you'd like to suggest a topic for the future you know we don't need any real detailed stories about masturbating just any opinions you have is fine you can reach us at info <laughs> at www.wdwdpodcast.com of course you can reach out to us on any of the social media platforms where our handle is the same and we look forward to hearing from you if you haven't already, you should subscribe to this so that you always make sure that our new episodes will show up in your feed. You can learn even more about all the other things we talk about, which usually aren't masturbation. Usually. Usually. Many other topics going up. And yeah, I think that's all I got. You got anything else? Nope. I think that's it. That's a good place to wrap. Perfect. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. 
If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. He hates that s'mores are an essential, like graham crackers are essential to s'mores. But the second thing is, why are all these food people getting into anti-masturbatory stuff? Like, what is that all about? The cure to masturbation is in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. That joke might have to be cut. That might be was too much. (laughs) Nope. We are keeping that.